0: Whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are, and what kind of philosophical work you do?
1: Thank you so much for inviting me to talk. Uh, My name is Alice Crary, and I'm a professor of philosophy at the New School in New York, Most of my work falls in the areas of ethics and social philosophy. I studied philosophy at Harvard, and then I did my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh. And since then, I've stayed at the new school that's exactly 20 years this year, apart from a short time on the philosophy faculty at Oxford. I was a committed feminist already when I started in philosophy, and I was interested at that young age in the epistemology of consciousness raising, a fair bit of my early research, and some of my research today is on the philosophy of Wittgenstein, my interest in consciousness raising partly explains the attraction Wittgenstein held for me. I took him to be presenting a view of language, at least later on, flexible enough to make sense of consciousness raising and related aspects of moral development. Something like the first decade and a half of my career, my emphasis was on telling a story about what moral thinking is like. And there's a strong literary element to my work in ethics. I've written about and taught a great deal of philosophy and literature. Of course, I've also been engaged with practical implications of my views about what moral thought is like. This has taken me into philosophy and cognitive disability and also very much into animal ethics. In the last half dozen years or so, My emphasis has shifted somewhat from ethics to social philosophy. I still work on feminist ethics and social thought. In fact, in um, the last 10 years, one of my big projects was starting a graduate gender and sexuality studies program at the new school. But my current projects also involve thinking about critical social thought more generally. I'm interested in things like the relationship between Frankfurt School critical theory and anglo-american philosophy i'm particularly interested in the role in that relationship of wittgenstein and other figures in the tradition of ordinary language philosophy and i'm also doing work that expands on things i've done in animal ethics i'm working on a project to bring out the political pertinence or urgency of animal ethics and i've also taken an interest in ways in which questions of animal ethics come up for even human-centered critical social thought.
0: Well, Alice, it's really great to have you on the podcast, in part because I think of you as someone who, I don't know if you would say you've been influenced by Iris Murdoch, but I think of your work as sometimes very much in the sort of spirit of her way of thinking about ethics and its relation to the rest of philosophy. And Murdoch is also an inspiration for me and inspiration for the podcast. So she starts each episode telling us that philosophy is not self-expression. But she also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. And that sets up question one, which is whether your temperament influences your philosophical work, and if so, how?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it really did strike me that you're using Murdoch's words as a frame for your podcast. It's certainly one of the things that piqued my interest in what you're doing. And she really is an important figure for me. I've learned from her and also um, partly from Cora Diamond's, I think, really insightful reading of some of her work in developing my own views about what moral thinking is like. The sentence you quoted in your question was one she wrote in the 1960s And it gives expression to a conception of moral thinking that she developed even before that, which is, and I'm going to say something about it because it's helpful to me in answering your question. In the mid-1950s, she talks about a moral concept as less like, these are her words, but I know the the passage by heart, less like an extensible and movable ring laid down to cover a certain area of fact, and more like a total difference of gestalt. And part of what she meant was that the ground that moral concepts trace out is already normatively shaped. I tend to think of that metaphorically in terms of having a normative topography. So her idea would be something like there's no neutral or you could say flat terrain on which to lay down moral concepts thought of as like hard, inflexible rings. Part of the work for her, as uh, for a moral thinker, is capturing the the normative topography to which our moral concepts apply. So for, Mor- for Murdoch, a thinker's temperament is reflected in that normative topography in the way that the world to which moral concepts are responsible appears to her. So in that sense, to the extent that I'm a Murdochian, yes, I think my temperament influences how I do philosophy and that it influences the kinds of questions and projects that seem salient to me, But if you want a more personal answer about how my temperament influences the philosophical work I do, I think my best attempt to capture it, I'm sure this is the kind of thing we're not always best about doing about ourselves, would be to talk about a kind of masochism, Uh (laughs) the sort of Murdochian ideas that we need to be willing and able to bring aspects of our temperaments um, or our sensibilities into question to really sort of rip ourselves apart Um, And she called that wrangling, famously called it wrangling with a fat, relentless ego. And somehow I have an inclination towards this kind of, you could call it self-scrutiny, but it's also a kind of self-punishment. And I often find philosophizing incredibly difficult and painful. And I return to it again and again and again.
0: So you've drawn a, a kind of tight connection between your temperament, your sort of willingness to scrutinize yourself and philosophy in a way that sounds sort of mixed or vexed, like it it sounds sort of challenging. I'm going to ask you question two in a way that might or might not connect with that. Question two is, has philosophy helped you out of practical or emotional difficulties in your life?
1: So with your prelude, I'm going to answer it in two different ways. Sure. One answer is really easy all the time. I don't have any distance from the work I do, if that's the right way to put it. I take my cue from views I have about the demands of moral thought whenever I'm confronted with a practical or emotional difficulty. But I thought I would give you an example that's really concrete of a kind of different kind, Yeah. just because it's easier to wrap around and it's really salient in my experience. So it has to do with marriage, but I have to start farther back. I already mentioned that I was a sort of committed feminist from a young age. I decided that I was a feminist when I was 13. And around the same time, for related reasons, although I'm sure they were inchoate, I decided not to marry. And I met my partner in the 1980s when we were both undergraduates at Harvard. And as we started to make life together, uh, my determination Not to marry became an issue. I wouldn't say a problem, but it was certainly an issue. You need to explain to this person you're with why you're not going to be marrying them. And early on in my philosophical studies, I took classes with and read the work of Stanley Cavell. And he has a lovely set of reflections on marriage in his book, The Pursuits of Happiness. And there he makes a distinction between the institution of marriage and the ideal of marriage. That's incredibly simple. But sometimes someone making an incredibly simple point really helps you, and it helped me figure out how to arrange my life. So my objections, I realized, were to the institution of marriage, not to various ways of trying to realize the ideal. So in 1994. And this was, for me, it matters that it was before I knew what it, I I was sort of, I wasn't aware of, even though it may already have been in the air, the cultural institution of a commitment ceremony. Even so in 1994, before then, I asked Cavell if he would officiate at a non-institutional celebration for us. And for various reasons, we wound up postponing the event until 2001, but Cavell did officiate really graciously and beautifully. And that's, I think, a really clear example of how philosophy helped me to solve a practical problem.
0: That's really wonderful. It's not the first time that Cavell has come up in the podcast as someone who had a profound impact on the philosophers that he taught and worked with and and knew. Yeah, what was he like? He's someone I really wish I had uh, interacted with.
1: I don't know that I'd like to be responsible for giving a sketch of his character. People are so big and complicated and also wonderful. So I know him to be a, a big personality. For me, he played a, an incredibly positive role in my life. And I'm not going to talk about every aspect of my life today with you, but but um, Cavell was in some sense never, well, he had various official roles in my life. I had an RA ship with him at one point. He wrote a letter for me going to graduate school, but he wasn't my PhD director. He was never someone supervising my research. Even so, he's, together with Cora Diamond, the only faculty member in an institution I was connected with in my life who really mentored me, if that's the right word, or kept track of me as a human being. And when I had trouble, Cavell was one of the people I would turn to. And he kept me in philosophy at a really difficult time for me.
0: Well, I'm going to turn for question three to something more random seeming and we'll see where it goes. This is a question about philosophy in parts of your unconscious life. Do you ever have philosophical dreams?
1: So I like this question, and but my answer is kind of equivocal. No, if a philosophical dream involves something like coherent philosophical conversation or ideas, But on the other hand, my dreams are vivid. I dream all the time. And they often involve philosophers, I know, and I'm in touch with. And sometimes they're pleasant dreams, and sometimes they're not. But I don't read much into the difference. And that's because when I dream about philosophers, I do so against the backdrop of reliably recurring nightmares I have about planes crashing or threatening to crash. And I know that there are uh, well-known psychological tropes about fear of flying. And I don't, I don't tend to think of myself in terms of those tropes, or, or only partly in terms of them, because I have a life history in which I happen, I think, to have come statistically oddly, frequently close to plane crashes. The first one was in 1991, when I was living in Quito, Ecuador. And I was supposed to be taking a group of students from Quito into the jungle, and the flight that we were going to take crashed, killing everyone on board two days before we left. Oh, my God. And a lot of the kids' parents took them out, but the school I was working for wanted us to go anyway. And there are lots of reasons why this, I think, got me started in, in having sort of, various plane imagery. But just to mention, I think there are four cases, other cases like this in my life. And another one is one that everyone will know, which is that I happen to live in Battery Park City, right below the South Tower, the day that planes flew into the World Trade Center. Right. And so I just, I've Been in close proximity to a lot of plane crashes, and so I don't think it's necessarily something about me. But it's true when I dream about philosophers. I have to apologize to people. I often take them with me onto planes that are losing altitude, or in my most classic dream sequence, have to fly under underpasses. So I apologize to my friends I take with me.
0: How do they react? Is there is there a pattern of what the other philosophers do in the dreams? Are they comforting to you? Are they victims or heroes, or 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 neither?
1: N- nothing. No patterns. No pattern. Neither victims nor heroes. They're just random occurrences happening on planes. I th- I, there's something I call dream logic, where I don't really want to give examples. I'm worried about mentioning people who've shown up in my dreams. Sure. there are different philosophers I know who show up as entirely different people. And what I call dream logic is I'll say, well, it was person X, but it was really philosopher Y. And exactly what that means in a dream, I don't know, but it happens all the time.
0: Yeah, well, also, interestingly, philosophically puzzling that it can be, it's like a relative identity. It's the same person, different philosopher. That's very puzzling. Let's go back to your career as a philosopher. And I'm going to ask you a question about ways in which it's been difficult. So this is question four. What's your worst moment as a philosopher?
1: So I'm going to talk about a couple of my worst moments as a philosopher. They are things that have to do with what I would call disillusionment about philosophy as a profession. And part of the background for that is that I was really naive about these things until I'd started graduate school. I just worked on what interested me, what struck me as important, and I tried to do good work. And naivete is a weird thing. It's not as if at some level I wasn't aware that what I was doing wasn't considered mainstream. I remember when I was visiting graduate s- schools before I went off to do the PhD. And at one school I was visiting that I overheard a couple of faculty members talking about how Hilary Putnam, who happens to have been my undergraduate advisor, Hilary Putnam's a Wittgensteinian. And they were talking about it as if it were scandalous gossip. <laughs> um, and it, I, it's not that I couldn't understand that, but what it might mean for me and for my life and career really didn't get brought home to me later And there's no one episode that accounts for sort of one's disillusionment, but there is one of this kind that I remember most vividly. And it was at the time of the SoCal hoax, which makes it easy to place. It's in 1996. And that was when, I I imagine you know it, but just to describe it, uh, the physicist Alan SoCal had submitted and published an article to the cultural studies journal Social Text. And He'd written an article in which he wanted to mock or to expose post-structuralist thought with an eye to showing really that there was no intellectual rigor at the journal or in similar venues. And I'm not going to talk about this, but one weird part of my life is I became friends later with the person who was the editor of Social Text at the time, and his account of what happened in his life at that time was incredibly humorous. In any case, after SoCal managed to get his piece published, he went public about what he'd done, and it became a big topic of discussion. And at the time, I was a graduate student at Pitt, and I happened to be in a feminist reading group with other graduate students. And, and actually, Annette Beyer, uh, one of our faculty members, was also participating. And it didn't seem like a big deal to me. I participated in so many reading groups As a graduate student, I did Plato's Dialogues, Kant reading him in German, Heidegger's Kant books, I read Tim Scanlon, I did Austen, one on McDowell, something on Kierkegaard's pseudonymous works, and so forth. And I'm really sure that I wasn't aware that anyone apart from those who were in the group cared anything at all about its existence. Anyway, at the time of the so-called hoax, we were reading some French feminism, and I think we were reading some of Julia Kristeva's work. I was in the philosophy department at Pitt one day, right around that time, and I was discussing the hoax with a few guys and a faculty member, and hopefully it wasn't someone I was close to or working with, but it was certainly someone I knew, came up and he addressed me, not the other two, apropos the Sokol affair, and he said, that shows that what you're doing in your reading group is crap. And then he marched off. That was it. Uh And it really struck me. I don't think it really hurt me, but it struck me. And I had a number of other things like that happen to me at the time and around that time. And after that, it really wasn't possible for me to be as naive about the profession as I was. And I should say I really treasure my early naivete. I'm really glad I had at least some years to develop my interests and ideas, which I really stuck to without worrying about how they would be professionally received. And I'm sure that reflection on these experiences affects the way in which I interact with students. And even on a bigger scale, it led me to treat, I hope, productively the traditions in which I was trained as themselves an appropriate object of critical study.
0: So in the intervening time, philosophy has become, if anything, much more professionalized. I mean, certainly feels that way as someone who's been in the field for 20 years. Do you have advice for Graduate students, or just students of philosophy, people interested in philosophy now, about how to manage the potential clash between just what they're interested in and what they care about and what's exciting to them and the professional constraints of philosophy.
1: It's a really good question, and it's hard. So, so when I was at in Oxford as recently as uh, just over a year ago, I was advising a group of undergraduate students. Who eventually formed a group they called Oxford Public Philosophy, and they interviewed me recently. And this was exactly this is what they wanted for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> they they wanted that for me, and I gave them answers that partly were very very. Cl- they 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 took as a reference point the Oxford system because I knew these students needed to manage it, and so in some sense it's a very very tailored piece of advice, sort of drawing attention to ways in which the the Oxford system is actually well designed or intended to be designed to both convey the tradition that they're being trained in and give them space um, through, you know, distancing, through faculty reading lists that aren't normative, and then your your reading lists from your tutor, and then the ability to, you know, take material in and, and round on it critically in your exams. So I was trying to first, on the one hand, sketch for them what space they were being given and also express my utter sympathy with the, their impatience about the pace at which things change and the need for change in, not just to who's on reading lists, but what kinds of methods get represented in different areas. But if I, so, so I, I, I do think these things are really difficult and I don't think, I think they're difficult partly because what individual students often want is structural change. And they also need to get through their own studies in a way that's productive and allows them to go on to develop a voice so that they could be part of that. or I mean, they can already be part of it, but but often they don't have the kind of knowledge of their first tradition that would allow them to be cons- fully constructive critics, and they need to imbibe more of it, even if what they ultimately want to do is be critical of it. So I, I told that story, and I mean, I could tell more in my own voice, but... But I also think there are differences depending on which population of students you're working with. One of the things that can be liberating about teaching PhDs at the new school is lots of them are international. That's a problem of a different kind right now with all that's going on politically. But there I'm often teaching students who have a kind of freedom... To do exactly what they want to do because it's welcome back in their home country if that's where they want to go become a professor. So I would say it varies very much depending on the population of students you're working with. I think it's a balancing act. And I also don't think you can be a good critic of any tradition without knowing it. So I, I would never counsel a kind of back turning or dismissiveness even of bodies of work students ultimately think aren't to their taste.
0: I'm going to ask one last follow-up on this just because I'm curious about how your career developed. So you, you got through grad school, you got a job, you are now a distinguished professor at the new school. Do you feel like the freedom to do what you want has grown? Do you feel like the, the constraints earlier are things you've been liberated from as you progressed through your academic career? Or do you still feel like, the profession is is limiting.
1: I think that it has to be right that I'm freer to do what I want, but it's also true that I'm desperately stubborn and I've done what I wanted all along. So, I'm not sure that it has much of an impact on what I actually do, but but there's that kind of I think especially at the assistant professor level, I sympathize utterly with that that sort of fear is this going to be recognized as the the kind of work that my colleagues appreciate and I i have been lucky in, in huge ways in that I think I might not have survived at the new school because I was so stubborn about not wanting to give in to pressure to change my research profile except in ways that made sense to me in my first several years as a young professor and right when it was time for me to come up for tenure I was offered a job at Oxford for the first time and that made my tenure much easier because I think some of my colleagues, not all of them, didn't really appreciate or see much value in what I was doing, even though I thought... I thought I had a project and, and I was running it. So so in that sense, I was incredibly lucky. And I would I would have to, I like I respect and admire. There's a lot to say about the New School. I would, however, have taken that job at Oxford. It became personally impossible for my partner and me, which is why I didn't do it.
0: Well, we've been talking for a while, and I think I'm going to move us on to our last question, question five, which is another Iris Murdoch-inspired question, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of?
1: Well, you've already heard some of it. As little as I like to admit it publicly, I'm afraid of flying. Before the pandemic started, I actually flew quite a bit, and, and I managed well enough. I don't think most people who travel with me notice. I'm sure today my worldview is shaped by... I felt need to take seriously the fact and significance of anthropogenic climate change. And I, I do have this kind of fear that is affecting the way I think about the future of my family and my students about a world without a future for the Earth's inhabitants. Some fear like that is a sort of structure in which during the course of my lifetime, my view of what, what it is to be alive on the planet is like. But closer to my philosophical practice, I know one of my biggest fears is disappointing my students. And I watch so many of them lead the way in doing philosophically really challenging work in areas like critical theories of all kinds, feminism and philosophy, critical race theory, critical disability studies, environmental philosophy, I try to learn alongside of them. And I want to find institutional space for their voices. And it's often incredibly difficult. And it's a source of real anguish. And I'm afraid of letting them down. Sometimes it happens. It's painful.
0: Well, I think ending both with the fear about climate change in the future and with the kind of hope and faith in students that I suppose, is reflected in the fear of disappointing them, that there's something that they stand for, that we as faculty have to live up to. Maybe that's a good place to end and say thank you one more time for appearing on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Alice Crary is University Distinguished Professor at the New School for Social Research and a visiting fellow at Regents College Oxford. She's the author of Beyond Moral Judgment and Inside Ethics on the Demands of Moral Thought. Thanks for listening to Five Questions.